things about the, this camp. How many of you were here last year? So about half. Um, I have for several years done a boys camp uh, in Alabama that's very similar to this, structured about the same way, that is incredible. It is, I think most of the boys that go would say it's the best week of their life or at least of the year. And it's that way because the guys that go really have a good attitude and really seek to help each other. A camp like this is good, not because there's good teachers or bad teachers or whatever. It's good if you gals are really helping each other. If you are working to really help there be a good, strong spiritual environment where, you know, in your conversations, in your interaction with each other, you're talking about spiritual things, you're praying together, you're encouraging each other. Some of you that are older and more mature are really reaching out to younger ones. Um, I thought this was interesting. Um, just a few weeks ago, we're having this boys camp in three weeks, and so I've been talking to a lot of the guys that are going. And one of the best guys there, I think he's 17 now, uh, I was talking to, and he said, you know, I want to make this camp as good for the young guys who come uh, in this year as what it was for me my first year. I said, well, what made it so good for you, for you your first year? And he mentioned one guy's name that was an 18-year-old that year. He said, you know, he really reached out to me. He, he, he asked me to play ping pong with him, and, and we started playing, and he started talking to me. And he talked to me a lot, and really encouraged me that he cared about me. I was just 14, he was 18, and he, he told me a lot. And he said, I determined right, right then I wanted to be like him. And I thought that was pretty cool, because he's really a great kid. He's one of the best ones there. But, but I didn't know that. I didn't know what had encouraged him. But you see if you can be that role model. And, and just, you know, if, if, if you all are trying to take advantage of the week to be as helpful and encouraging, even if you're one of the younger ones here, you can be encouraged. You can try to, to serve. When we are seeking to be served, you know, it doesn't work well. When we come into something trying to be helpful in whatever role we can, that'll be a great week, and you'll be glad you came, and others will be benefited by it as well. Um, it's harder to study the letters in the New Testament, I think, than most other things in the Bible. The letters are written different. They are more personal. It's a little harder to follow the train of thought in a letter than it is, say, in a story. If you want to teach something easy to teach in the Bible, teach the stories. Because stories are fun. You can see them in your mind. You can kind of imagine the event. And it's pretty easy, usually, to draw lessons from them. But trying to follow the train of thought in a letter is more difficult. Sometimes it requires a lot more concentration. We're going to look at the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and I like the letter. I think there's some really cool things in it. But they are harder to get. We'll have to pay more careful attention and it's kind of like a lot of things, the things you have to dig out that take a lot more effort, you appreciate more. And there's a lot of times when God has put some of the best gems in the Bible in some of the most complicated passages to make us really appreciate them once we get to them. So it'll be a little bit like that. Now, in Acts 17, Paul is on his second journey. 
Now, I don't know how much you've studied the book of Acts and know about Paul's journeys, but uh, who did Paul take with him on his first journey? Barnabas. On his second journey? Timothy. Timothy he picked up in the early part of the journey. Who did he take with him for the whole journey? Silas. And all three of them came to Thessalonica. Now, if you remember the text in Acts 16, Paul wanted to go some other places to preach, and God wouldn't let him. <laughs> Told him not to go here and not to go there. So he went straight across to Troas. And you remember what he saw one night in a vision when he was in Troas? Yes, saying, come over and help us. So Paul crossed the sea into Macedonia, and he started preaching and teaching in the towns of Macedonia. It really helps if we can get in our mind place names in the Bible. Macedonia probably doesn't mean much to, to us. Now, if I say Kentucky, y'all know where Kentucky is, right? That means something to us. But Macedonia doesn't. There were three main places in Macedonia that the Acts says that Paul went and preached. The first one, anybody know? Philippi. And then... Thessalonica, and then Berea. Yeah, those three places are Macedonian towns. So he'd been in Philippi. Now, things were kind of rocky in Philippi. Do you remember that? You remember the first person we know about Paul converting in Philippi? Some of you ladies probably should remember that. Lydia, yeah. And they cast that demon out of that girl that was making a lot of profit for her owners, and they didn't like that too well. And they drugged Paul and Silas before the authorities. Do you remember what happened to them? They were beaten with rods. And then you remember where they were put? In jail. You remember what they were doing about midnight? Praying and singing. And remember what God did to the prison? Earthquake shook and opened the doors and all that. That was what happened in Philippi. And Paul was asked to go ahead and leave the city. <laughs> and so he did. And they came to Thessalonica. So uh, look down uh, in Acts 17 at the first nine verses. They, they went to Thessalonica in verse 1 where there was a synagogue. In verse 2, for three Sabbaths, Paul preached to them, telling them about Jesus in verse 3. And some of them joined Paul and Silas in verse 4, along with a lot of Greeks and leading women. But the Jews, verse 5, becoming jealous, got some you know, rough necks from the marketplace, and they formed a riot and to stir up the crowd, verse 8, the city authorities, and basically in verse 10, the brethren sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So Paul preached there for a little while, got some people following the gospel, and then trouble started, and Paul was as escorted out of town, leaving behind this young group of Christians. By young, I mean they hadn't been Christians very long. Paul hadn't preached very long before he got asked to move on. Um, and how would you feel if you were Paul leaving behind a group of Christians that hadn't been Christians very long? Worried. Well, worried. What would you be worried about? You might fall away and hold Absolutely. Yeah. You, if you care about them, you realize they're not very strong yet. They're spiritual babies. And what's going to happen? And... What might especially worry you from what you know about the situation at Thessalonica? Yeah, there's a 
opposition to the preaching. There's persecution and all that. I wonder how these new babies are going to deal with that. Now Paul moved on. He moved on to Berea and then down to Athens. And we'll eventually find out some things about all that in 1 Thessalonians. And he moved on to Corinth. And so this letter is probably written, I would say, within a few months. Uh, of, of the time the group was started. Maybe maybe not many months. Alright, any questions or comments about that introduction to First, first Thessalonians? Alright, the rest of the time we'll just spend in First Thessalonians. And uh, I know that you are uh, studying a lot. And that makes it more challenging. This requires a lot of concentration. Um, it's kind of like having school in the middle of summer. Fortunately, it's cool today. Thank God for that. I've been praying about that for a while now. It probably won't be cool tomorrow. After that, things somewhat cooler again. So we can thank God for any cool day. And the days that aren't, we can realize that air conditioning is a pretty recent phenomenon. Everybody had to deal with that a few years ago. And um, maybe we can appreciate more of what the Lord has given us. Um, but if you get at all tired or sleepy and want to stand up, that helps me usually. Uh, so you're welcome to do that. That never bothers me at all. Just try to get to where you're not, you know, obstructing somebody's vision. Or but feel free to stand up or do whatever you need to to uh, stay alert. All right, would somebody read the first verse? Paul, so... <laughs> That's good. Go ahead and read. Oh, sorry. Paul, so famous and Timothy to the church of the of the. Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Now you're familiar with this means of starting out a letter. What do most of the letters start with? The author. Does that strike you as kind of odd? We don't usually do that when we write a letter, do we? Where do we put our name when we write a letter? At the end. Does that make sense to put your name at the end? Tell me you read a letter all the way through before you know who wrote it to you. <laughs> we don't do that, do we? We're going to, if necessary, look at the end of the letter to start with to find out who sent it to us. Maybe we find out the you know, address on the envelope or something like that. Uh, but we can do that because our letters come in pages. Their letters came in scrolls. We once have to unroll the whole scroll to find out who wrote it and then you go back up to the start. So, they, this was just the way they wrote letters. They started with the name of the author. Now, in this case, this is a very brief, a remarkably brief introduction. Usually it's a little longer. Who were the ones who sent this letter? Uh, Sylvanus. Now, do you know anything about this Sylvanus guy? Probably it's the long form of Silas. You know we do that all the time. Deborah becomes Debbie and, and Sandra becomes Sandy and you know all that kind of stuff. That's probably what they were doing. Sylvanus was probably shortened to Silas a lot of the time. So Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy would have been who to the Thessalonians? Yeah, but what were they for the Thessalonians? Yeah, these were the ones that came with the gospel in the first place. And all three of them were at least sending the letter. There's a little bit of debate about whether or not they wrote it with Paul or they just sent it with Paul and kind of endorsed it. 
I take the view Paul wrote it and they helped in sending it and kind of added their, yeah, that's right, uh, to it. But you can look at that however you want to. Do you know how many letters in the New Testament Paul wrote? It's a good trivia question. Was it three? It's more. Eleven? More than that. And it's less than that. We don't know that, do we? Do you know how many books there are in the New Testament? Twenty-seven. You know that. Do you know how many of the twenty-seven Paul wrote? Thirteen. A few people think he wrote Hebrews. That would be fourteen. He did. But even not counting Hebrews, he wrote thirteen of the twenty-seven books. And do you know how many in how many of those thirteen Timothy's name is mentioned? This is curious. Ten. Ten of the thirteen. Timothy was just such an important person in Paul's life. So Paul Silvanus and Timothy write to who? The church. Yeah. Now churches means a group. So they write to this group of Christians, group of the Thessalonians. Sometimes churches were described in terms of who made it up. Uh, this is the Thessalonians church, because they're, that's who is a part of it. And uh, they're in God the Father and in Christ. And then he wishes for them grace and peace. Always in that order, because peace comes from grace. And have the peace without having the grace, the gift of God. Why have any questions or comments on that verse? That's just the introduction. Alright, look at what he actually starts saying. Would somebody read 2 to 4? We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Okay, what's he doing here? Yes. He's really reporting on his thanks. He's telling them that he's, he's always thanking God for them. You can tell that prayer is really important in Paul's life because he's always using always to describe how much he prays and thanks God for various people. Why thank God for the Thessalonians? Why not praise them? You're exactly right. God is the one that made them what they are. And so he thanks God. Now, it's common for Paul to start out like this. After that introduction, to say, I thank God for you. Does he do it every letter? Since I asked that, you know the answer. No, right? He doesn't do it every letter. Do you know any letters where he doesn't do it? Galatians, he doesn't do it. I wonder why he doesn't do it in Galatians. That's exactly what he doesn't have anything to be thankful for about the Galatians. They were believing the Lord. And he doesn't do it in Titus because the situation among those Crete Christians where Titus was was also not good. Mostly the others he does. There's a couple that's not quite the same way. But he thanks God. Uh, and, and, and praise for these brethren. Uh, they were never far from Paul's thoughts and prayers. What does he thank God for? Their work in faith. Yes. Look at verse 3. There are three 
qualities that he mentions and three things that come from those qualities. What are the three basic qualities they have? Do you ever see those together in any other passages? In all kinds of other passages, if you're looking, that's all over the Bible. Start looking for that, especially the New Testament. Start looking for the faith, hope, love passages together. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. That's the obvious one. But we'll find another one in 1 Thessalonians. And there's quite a few more throughout the letters, especially because those three qualities kind of define Christianity. It's based on faith, hope, and love. But it's not just faith, hope, and love. These faith, hope, and love are productive. They have results. The, the faith leads to work. The love leads to labor. The hope causes them to be steadfast. Now, if we were thanking God for some church, what would we usually thank God for for the church? The people in it. The people in it. The work done. The work done. And if we're not very spiritual, maybe the nice building they've got, and how many more members they've got than they used to, and how big the contribution is. It's okay to thank God for those things, but I'm impressed with the fact that Paul thanks God for spiritual qualities that he sees producing good fruit in these brethren. And and what's the one he really talks about the most in verse 3? The hope. The hope. Because he says the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Now, um, what is it, what's the hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's he referring to? What's your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? Salvation and eternal life. Yes, when's that going to happen? Yeah. Uh, so this relates to Jesus coming back and bringing us up to God. And he talks a lot about that in first and second Thessalonians book. The early Christians were constantly thinking about the return of Christ. And that hope made them steadfast. It gave them endurance. Made them really stick it out because they were looking forward to Jesus coming back. And not only does he talk about what they were doing, verse 3, but what does he talk about in verse 4 that he's thankful for? That they're loved by God. Yeah. God loved them. What else did God do for them in verse 4? He chose them. Now, who were God's chosen people in the Old Testament? Israel. Now God's chosen people are the Christians. Now, God choosing them, does that mean if God chooses you, you can't get out of it, you're just one of the chosen, and you're going to be saved no matter what? No. no. That's the way some people take that. Let me just show you one quick verse that you might remember about this. In 2 Kings, chapter 23, this is just one place among many that shows that's not the case. 2 Kings 23, 27. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. God was going to cast off Jerusalem, the city he had chosen. 
did God choose in Jerusalem mean he couldn't cast it off? No. So God chose them, but that depended on their continuing to have faith over love. If they abandoned the faith, then God would reject those that he had chosen. Alright, so Paul's thankful based upon what they've done that was based upon God's choosing them. Do you have any questions or comments? Through verse 4. Alright, now the connection of thought is how do we really know God chose them? Well, that's verses 5 through 10. Somebody read that. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay, so... In this case, in verse 5, how did he know God chose them? What showed him that? The gospel? Yeah, how the gospel came to them. Now he's thinking back to it. They're taking the gospel to them when they came in Acts 17. How did the gospel come to them? Did it come to them in word? No. Yes. Not only in word. It did come in word. Obviously the gospel involves words. Verse 6, they received the word. But it came with more than just the word. What else did it come with? Power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. Yeah, and I wonder what that means. How did the gospel come to them in power and Holy Spirit and full conviction? Jesus. Yeah, but I think there's even more than that he's thinking about. When Paul would preach the gospel somewhere, what would he do? He, he like, gave out the simple facts of the gospel. He didn't, like, fall them down. He That's true. That's true, but he didn't warn them. What else did he do? Yes, sometimes he did, and he worked signs and wonders and miracles that showed the power of the Holy Spirit. So they got the gospel not just in word, but they got the proof behind it that proved that this was really the gospel of God. And uh, so that shows that they've been chosen by God. The word came to them powerfully. But it wasn't just the power of what he was able to do, it was his conviction. He says, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. His, their behavior, the way they lived among them, proved they had the true gospel. They lived what they preached. And then, verse 6, well, how did the Thessalonians respond to the gospel coming? Yeah. They, they responded really well and the rest of it is just how they responded 
In verse 6, they became imitators of who? Does that strike you as the right order? <laughs> imitators of us and the Lord? That doesn't seem right, does it? Shouldn't it be imitators of the Lord and us? Who thought about that? Why would he say it this way? Yeah. Well, um, a lot of times I think people see the gospel working in others, and so they like they can see by like our example, and they can tell something different. Hopefully, they can tell something different about us and say they have something I don't, and I want that. And so, first of all, like, your interest is kind of sparked by the other person, and then the other person when they give the glory to God, and when they they when Christ then uh, then they would become imitators of Christ. Excellent. I think that's it. Who do we first see? We first see the person. I mean, that's how people come to see Christ a lot of times. They don't see Christ first. They see the people that have the light of Christ in them. And then that leads them to see Christ. By the way, uh, I, I, there's paper around here if you need paper. I will, by the end of the week, hopefully have my outline finished and give it to you. Okay, this is kind of a uh, go-as-you-go, do-as-you-go project. I had the outline in Portuguese, so I decided I probably would be a help with you. So we're working on that. But uh, it's not too bad anyway. I don't want people looking at my outlines while I'm teaching them. So, uh, so you'll have it to take home and, and do that with. But would you want people to be imitators of you? a way that people can imitate us and it would be a good thing. So this was good in their case. They became imitators of us and the Lord. They received the word. How did they receive the word? With joy. That's weird. You wouldn't think affliction and joy would be connected together, would you? Almost always is. Look at that sometimes. So many of the passages talk about tribulation and persecution are linked right with joy. Like this one is. I think we don't rejoice as much as we should because the gospel hadn't cost us enough. The harder it is, sometimes the more joy we get from it. We wouldn't think that would be the case. But it, you, you just start looking for joy in the passages that talk about persecution and affliction. That's usually there. So they received the word with a lot of difficulty, but with great joy. Their response was great. And, and that led to what happening in verse 7? They became the Isn't that interesting? In verse 6, they were doing what? They were following Paul's example. Now they become an example. For who? Where? Where's Macedonia and Achaia? Where were they? Macedonia. Achaia was right to the south of them. So it would be like us saying that these brethren became uh, examples to all the believers in Indiana and Kentucky. That'd be how it'd be. Because they were in Macedonia, right below them was Achaia. So, there were people, uh, brethren, all over that whole region that heard about this great example of the Thessalonians. They were an example. And not only that, but what else happened in verse 8? They were spreading the word. 
they were. Where were they spreading the word? Everywhere. Yeah, Macedonia, Achaia, and really everywhere else too. And people talked about the Thessalonian Christians. Paul heard from other pe people about how the Thessalonians were doing so well. What a great thing that they became an example and they sounded out the word. They received the word and they passed it on. And Paul's really uh, thankful for the results of the Thessalonians turning to the Lord. Do you have comments or questions through verse 8? The people who heard about the Thessalonians, what do they tell Paul about the Thessalonians in verses 9 and 10? Yeah. They tell Paul the steps of the Thessalonians' conversion. There are three steps in verses 9 and 10. What did they do first? They turned from idols, and then they did what? Serve God, and then yeah, waited for Jesus. Now those are the steps it takes to be converted. You have to leave your idols, you have to leave the other things you have allegiance to, and you have to turn to serve God, and you await the coming of Jesus. Now that's the part we don't do so well sometimes. How much do you usually think about Jesus coming back? How much expectancy do we have for Jesus coming back? The early Christians were constantly expecting his return. I think we need to think about it. I don't think we have that sense of we're waiting on Jesus coming back. What do people wait for now? <laughs> or dying. But you know many people waiting for Jesus to come back. I know Jesus might not come back until after we're dead. But, but I think the pattern is we know he may come back in our lifetime and we're eagerly anticipating that. We, we're waiting for his son who, who, who rescues us from the wrath to come. What a great blessing. You want to go through the wrath to come? And then a wonderful thing that Jesus rescues us from that. So these men had turned to God by leaving idols and, and turning to God uh, to serve God and then to wait for Jesus to come back. All right, comments or questions on chapter 1. Now what he says in these last six verses from 5 to 10 of chapter 1 is repeated in chapter 2, but amplified a whole lot. We see in, in uh, verse 5 of chapter 1 how the gospel came. We're going to see how the gospel came in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Then we see the response of the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verses uh, 6 through 10. We're going to see the response of the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. So really, chapter 1 summarizes what we're going to look at in more detail here in chapter 2. All right, would somebody read chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we have we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Okay. Paul talks about how it was when he came there. What quality does he emphasize here? 
He suffered and yet he had boldness. You know what the word boldness means? Courage. Now what would there be that would make it hard to have courage to preach to the Thessalonians? The persecution that he had received in Philippi. Because like he'd been in this one city, he preached the gospel, and he got beaten with rods and put in prison, actually in the stocks, maybe in torture, like stretching or whatever. That's what happened to him in Philippi because he preached. What would you do in that case if you got run out of town and you went down to the next town? I'd not want anybody to know I was a Christian, so I didn't run the risk of getting that happening again. Have you ever thought about being beaten with rods? Sounds like a very unpleasant experience. I bet he was black and blue and, you know, whatever already from that. Do you want to go to the next place and risk that again? But Paul had the boldness to go to Thessalonica and preach. Good thing for Thessalonians, he did. That's what brought them to the Lord. So he's a great example in the boldness that he had in spite of what he had suffered. Do we ever uh, back down from speaking about the Lord because of possible opposition? I do. What kind of opposition do we worry about? Awkwardness. Yes, awkwardness. Rejection. Rejection. Embarrassment. You're really not supposed to talk about God and all that in polite company these days. And so sometimes just social pressure will keep us from boldness. Not even rods that he was beaten with could keep Paul from boldness. He's a great example. That would inspire us to speak about the Lord more boldly and with less uh, fear. Now, how did he have boldness in verse 2? And boldness in God. in God. He gives the credit to God for everything. He didn't have some kind of personal boldness. One like he was just some sort of a really gutsy, courageous kind of a guy. God gave him the boldness and he gives God the credit for it. Uh, we need to do a lot more of giving God the credit for who we are and what we are and for the good qualities that we have that really aren't something that we have uh, you know, managed to achieve on our own, but God gives them to us. So, he, and, and look at what else he says here in verse 2. How was it that he had this boldness? Oh, wait a minute. Um, how, how, how did he expect them to know about the boldness? Well, he says, as you know. He's going to keep saying that. How would they have known? Yeah. No, not just that. Uh, that was wrong. Never mind. How would they have known? He said, as you know. Well, how would they have known? Paul and then from both sides of the so they would have seen it or... Exactly. Yeah, you were there. You know, you know because you saw it. Not, Paul's not revealing something they hadn't already seen. Look at how bold we were when we came. It's just been a few weeks or months. I wonder if Paul showed anybody's back with the whelps and bruises and all that. But you know how bold we were. Now, why would Paul tell about his boldness? You go around telling people, I'm really bold in teaching the gospel. Because he 
own good so they can, even if they get tempted or whatever, they can have fullness just like Paul did. Exactly. He presents his own life as, a, as an incentive, as a positive example, because we know they're going to be persecuted. And so he wants them to see his boldness, his courage in spite of the pain, so that they'll be spurred on. It wasn't for Paul to glorify himself. Do you have any comments or questions through verse 2? Yes. Do you have a suggestion? Um, I know, like, for me, if someone says something, like, compliments me or something like that, like, I have a hard time um, giving the glory to God without sounding prideful. Like, even though, like, does that make sense? Because even though I'm passing the glory on to God, it's like I'm still accepting their praise. And, like, I know it's not wrong to accept praise, but, I don't know, I have a hard time not sounding prideful even when I'm trying to get the glory done. That is a very good practical question. What would you say to that? That ever happened to you? How do you deal with that? Well, let me say a couple things about that. One is, I don't really think we ought to worry too much about how we sound. I think we ought to worry about how we are. Now, you know, if the compliment is going to my head, and I say something about God in such a way as to try to promote myself, look really spiritual or something, that's bad. If, if, if my attitude, my heart is private. I was just talking with somebody yesterday who had a hand in a couple of people being converted yesterday. And the person I was talking to is a teenager. And he said, you know, somebody at the church after the baptisms started complimenting me. You know, because I've been trying to help these people. And he said, I just decided to leave the building because I was afraid that if I heard very much of that, it would tell me to be private. Well, that's my work, is the problem. What people think is a big deal. You know, I don't know how it sounds to say, well, thank God that he has enabled me to do this. Maybe to some people that does sound bad. But if my heart is, that I'm really thankful to God and I realize that it's not from me, it's from God, well then, it's fine to say that and whatever impression people get, as long as it's, I'm sincere and I think that's okay. People aren't very used to people giving credit to God. You know, it sort of sounds awkward sometimes, but but I think that's what we're going to do. I don't know, what do you think about that? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I've heard it said before, like, if you think about it, like, every time someone compliments you, it's like they're giving you a rose. And then at the, you know, at the end of the day, when you've got all these roses, you hand the bouquet up to God. Like, everything that I have is because of you. And it's actually yours. So. Sometimes people are pretty reckless with their compliments also. You need to be a little careful about that. You know, you just, oh, somebody's just wonderful. Well, they're probably not. <laughs> and it's going to be a temptation to feel fine. You know, I, I'm, I'm usually, you know, kind of like, you know, I appreciate what you did, but 
when I say that is a change of revival. You know, it's God that did that. I mean, you know, thank God. You know, he was he was willing to use you, he was willing to give you that strength and all that. It's wonderful, but let's give God the credit, not so much the person. Paul did that a lot. But Paul also was not reluctant to use himself as an example. With his pure heart, he was willing to actually say, We had both of us to preach. Now he didn't say it because he wanted to, all the Thessalonians to pat him on the back and say, oh, good job, Paul, you really had boldness. He said that because he wants them to have boldness. It's really hard to say those things without problems. That's a good question. Other thoughts or questions? All right, three and four. For exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. Now, here are some things Paul doesn't do when he preaches and teaches. Our exhortation does not come from error. What does that mean? Say that positively. Paul's message was true. It was exactly right. He says it doesn't come from impurity. What does that mean? Paul's motives are pure. It's not by way of deceit. What does that mean? He wasn't trying to trick them. Yes, that's exactly right. It wasn't deceptive, underhanded, crafty. There's no trick involved in this. It wasn't trying to seduce people to obey. And in verse 4, what was he not trying to do? Not to please man. Yeah, isn't that a problem? You have a problem with wanting to please man. When you want to please man, you're not concerned about pleasing God. Paul said, I want to please God. I don't care what men think about me. We just are possessed by what people think about us, aren't we? How often do you think about that? Oh, I was just going to comment, like, that's one thing that keeps me from, like, talking, like, so much about praising God, like, how a person's going to think of me, like, oh, she's churchy, she's weird, you know? Because, uh, like, someone told me that before, and they work and I go around me because their mom told them I was church, and I was like, oh. And that makes it way more awkward. But you kind of have to go past that, and it's one of my big struggles to get over that embarrassment, I guess you could call it. Sorry, that was kind of random. That's <laughs> right on target. I mean, did Jesus always please men? Certainly wasn't his goal. It's a good thing because most of the time he didn't. We gotta get over that. We want to please God. It doesn't make a difference whether men like us or not. That's easy to say that. That's hard to believe. We all want people to like us and to approve of us. But Paul was willing to stick his neck on the line. I don't think that's a good metaphor. Stick his neck out or stick something on the line. Whatever. He was willing to really risk himself and make himself honorable by preaching boldly what it was going to be popular with a lot of people. And again, Paul says um, that, that, that this is the way he does it. He's going to come, come down again in verse 5 and say, as you know, Paul's telling them things they'd already observed in his, his preaching and teaching. All right, do you have any questions or comments? Do two, four. Somebody ought to, uh, maybe several somebody can kind of keep in mind that that's where we stopped here. I won't stop the same place everywhere, and you can tell me tomorrow, uh, and we'll uh, continue from there. I really appreciate your attention. I do know 
this kind of study is more detailed, a little less interesting than a story. But I'm hoping that one of the things we get by going through this, especially by the end of the time, is kind of seeing how to study a book like this. It's a little more detailed. All right, so I appreciate